All right, let's get started. No further delays. Um, welcome, everyone. Another episode of Glam Up with Tree, and we have our guest, local uh, regular guest Adnan, as well as our new guest, Robin Wansley Warloba. And I'm going to have her introduce herself since there's a lot going on there, a lot of great stuff, and I don't want to misrepresent anything. So, Robin, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Yeah. Uh, and just first off, thank you for having me, Tree and Anon. Um, just a little bit about myself. Um, I'm Robin Wansley Wallaba. I'm a local uh, community organizer and activist um, that's based here in uh, the Twin Cities. Um, when I'm not, you know, showing up on front lines with my, you know, community members around different crises in our communities, especially around police violence. I'm a labor organizer by day and night. Um, I work for our statewide teachers union um, and support our educators and, you know, pushing for community campaigns to fully fund our schools and to make them you know, more uh, equitable and inclusive places for our families and our students. Um, and to tie all that together, I'm also uh, running as an independent democratic socialist for the Minneapolis City Council, you know, as someone who was out in the streets during our uprising in the wake of George Floyd's uh, murder. Um, it became very clear, you know, in that moment, in many moments prior to that, that you know, the status quo of our city, the political establishment of our city has failed to meet the needs of ordinary working class people, as well as just especially black and brown and indigenous folks in our communities. Um, so it's really, you know, time to have new leadership that's coming through with bold, um, you know, visions and, and changes, but also knowing that it takes collective action, it takes collective organizing, you know, folks from all walks of life to make those transformative changes happen. So I'm really excited, you know, to take on <laughs> this this historic opportunity in our city. And yeah, look forward to going more in depth throughout our conversation. Me too. OMG, Robin, you are such a heavy hitter. You are such a powerhouse. I'm so happy that everything you're speaking to, that you're able to be the person who is able, able to articulate and elucidate all these things and turn that into a platform that we need to have in our offices, in our uh, representative governing offices. And would you like to describe your podcast while we're here at the front so that people know how to hear more about what you're doing? Absolutely. You know, for folks to just learn, excuse me, or uh, want to know how to get involved in our, our campaign, um, just check out robinforminneapolis.com. Also, as you mentioned, um, our campaign has a podcast that comes out every two weeks uh, where we speak with, you know, local movers and shakers who are leading phenomenal grassroots efforts in our communities around social, economic, and racial justice. We have some really good, you know, episodes there with leaders um, in labor from nurses, as well as from, you know, leaders who've been holding down our very own George Floyd Square and just really amplifying the amazing work that our neighbors do every day in the midst of so many crises and chaos at the city level. And to show that, you know, when we fight, we win. I definitely encourage folks to check out our podcast. It's on, again, our website, Stitcher, as well as Spotify. So just look up Robin's Nest and we'll be there. Thank you so much. And, and just in case, like SEO wise, there you might run into for audience members, you might run into other Robin's Nests. It's the one with the Robin's logo. It's a blackbird with orange uh, de detailing um, with a blue and orange gradient. It says Robin's Nest. That's the one. That's the only one. All the other ones are defunct now that we have <laughs> a, the legit Robin's Nest podcast. Can you bring my stereo? I want you to bring 
All right. And now that we have the, the official stuff out of the way, I would like for our conversation here to be more loose than, or as loose as you be willing for it to be. So we can talk about like the serious stuff, because clearly there's a lot of serious stuff going on in this path, in these paths, in the, in this new year. I was like, how far back have the atrocities? No, that yeah, the, the tale is very long now. We, in the past month, we've seen a lot of things happen, happening in Gaza, in Myanmar, in Colombia, all of which are rooted in some kind of anti-imperialist, anti-state violence, and and pro-worker solidarity, right? At least I'm thinking of Colombia and Myanmar. Those movements were started when uh, healthcare and um, education workers and other and middle-class, working-class laborers were like, we've had enough of our governments uh, cracking down on us, and we're going to use our labor, withhold our labor as a means of protest, among other things. So, so these are things that are on everybody's minds that we can, and there are clearly overlaps or um, the, the stuff happening there dovetails with with things happening in the U.S. as well. And we can speak to that because I know, Adnan, you've been wanting to speak to that if you'd like to to hit us off or Robin, if you have thoughts on that. Adnan, you're, you're one of you're basically a co-host now, so you, you should set the tone. Basically, I kind of wanted to talk about the situation that's uh, happening in Palestine right now. There, as of yesterday, there's there have been 227 people that have been killed. 227 Palestinians. 64 of those are children, and 1,620 people have been wounded. Now, the thing about Gaza is the median age is basically 18, which is one of the lowest places in the world. You know, we have a lot of kids basically running around with their parents, grandparents that have been murdered. I know some people have been asking, I, I, I've I've heard some people saying, what's the connection between, you know, the plights of, you know, black and indigenous people here and the Palestinian struggle that's happening in uh, in, in Israel? Israel, in a lot of ways, is a white supremacist state. You know, in the past five in the past five years, there have been at least six high-profile killings of Ethiopian Jews by Israeli police. You know, and Israel at the same time is also engaging in forced sterilization on Ethiopian women. There are Jewish women escaping Ethiopia, you know, to go live in this Jewish state. Right? They are basically forced to be sterilized in order to get there. You know, if they refuse that sterilization, then they can't get there. And a lot of them are escaping discrimination and violence in their own homelands. In fact, I have like one quote by one Ethiopian woman where she says, we, we said we won't have the shot. They told us if you don't, you, you won't go to Israel and you won't get aid or medical care. We were afraid. We didn't have a choice. Without them and their aid, we couldn't leave there. So we accepted the injection. It was only with their permission that we're, we were allowed to leave. So this is basically, in, in an essence, this is eugenics. Social workers have noticed that the birth rates among Ethiopian Jews has basically halved within one decade. Within 10 years, their birth rate has gone down by half. You know, that's pretty insane. And in fact, uh, are you both of you guys, are you aware of a story that happened, I think, a couple months ago where... A, a member of the U.S. Armed Forces, a black soldier, was pulled over by police and they essentially beat him up. Have you, have you guys heard that story? I, 
I do recall that. Yes. Yeah, I think it was in uh, North Carolina, if if I'm not mistaken. A similar thing actually happened in um, in Israel, where a Ethiopian Israeli soldier, a, a member of the IDF, was pulled over by police and was beaten by police. And in fact, that sparked you know a huge outrage and huge um, protests. Now the thing is. Israel and the Israeli police and the Israeli military, they engage in a lot of heavy-handed violence against the Palestinian population and, you know, the Ethiopian Jewish population. And the interesting part is a lot of our police forces here in the United States are trained by Israeli police, are trained by the IDF. We talk a lot about the militarization of police, and a lot of that comes from the training that they receive in Israel, the training, you know, they receive in other, you know, heavily militarized countries. And a lot of that is being paid for by, you know, us, by taxpayers. You know, taxpayers are for the most part the ones that are funding, you know, these organizations. In fact, you know, this is something I discovered recently, and this is pretty shocking. You know, the NYPD, basically they have this... um, thing called the international liaison program they basically have offices all over the world you know they have offices in italy they have offices in australia they have offices uh in in the middle east and there's actually like a really crazy quote by the deputy the commissioner of intelligence and counterterrorism where he says we need to be positioned 24 hours a day 365 days a year all around the globe to react in New York City in real time. So they're basically saying we have to be all over the world just to protect one city, you know. That's 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 the New York Police Department. They have they're not the CIA, they're not the, you know, the NSA, you know, that is that should be way beyond their jurisdiction. Oh, and, and also I want to bring up, you know, the way that George Floyd was killed with the, you know, with the knee on the neck, that that restraint it's a regular technique that's used on uh, Palestinians, you know, by by the Israeli uh, police force. So in a lot of ways, you know, the struggle that's happening there and the struggle that's happening here is, is very interconnected. Yeah, I think you hit on a, a multitude of points, especially, you know, framing Israel as a white supremacist state. Why I, I see many extensions of solidarity with our fellow, you know, Palestinian uh, neighbors, especially as a, you know, a black person, I think largely because, you know, Palestinians and black folks know what it li- what it's like to live under apartheid state, which essentially is what Israel and and what USA is essentially as well, you know, being displaced um forcefully or, you know, voluntarily from your your homes being brought over to a place, actually, no, I think it's more so around the displacement. You know, Israel originally was home towards Palestinians and, you know, for Israeli folks escaping, you know, the violence and Nazism that, you know, exploded during, you know, the war war and to seek refuge in, you know, the home of Palestine. But essentially, as you mentioned, inactive very things that they fled from on a, a brown, Muslim brown community, um, essentially. And I think that's something really, really key for 
I think folks in movement building or liberation work should really pay attention to of how we can also, you know, as marginalized citizens, um, end up enacting the same type of exploitation and violence, you know, if we also assume positions of power um, in this imperialist capitalist structure. Um, and, and those are cautionary tales, again, to be fleeing from genocide in, in all parts of Western Europe, all around the world, and then to go and spend the past five, six decades literally using genocidal tactics, displacement, to, uh, weapons uh, of, of terror, you know, to attack, displace, marginalize, and dehumanize, you know, brown people. Again, that is a reality that I think any Black person can resonate with. Um, and also knowing that the military, policing is such an essential part of dehumanization, that marginalization that's taking place in Israel um, and, you know, towards uh, Palestinians. Um, we see that every day. I mean, again, just here in Minneapolis, you know, we were the birthplace of the largest social movement in U.S. history last May in the wake of George Floyd's murder. And it was largely because of decades of police violence where officers, state powers have given police officers, and these are your regular Joe Blow Waidu from like the suburbs who are given a badge and essentially given the power to kill black and brown working class people at their discretion. Again, these are just regular white people. <laughs> Ain't nothing superpower about them, but we have state forces that have granted them th this impunity to essentially enact the interests of the state. And the interest of the state is also to keep black people, brown people, indigenous people displaced from their native lands, displaced from their communities, you know, displaced from having access to social and economic infrastructures that uh, promotes wellness for their communities. And, and by that, I mean, you know, housing, um, which is what we're also seeing in, in Gaza right now. You know, one of the ways in which they're, the IDF is is justifying their attacks is saying that, you know, we need to evict, um, you know, Palestinians because now they're, they're, they're part of the Hamas. You know, there's terrorists lighting in their homes. And literally you're using tools of eviction, again, displacement, all through force. We experience that day to day as well. So I think there's so many similarities, you know, between the struggles and what I'm so, uh, I would say, appreciative in this moment is, you know, I recall several years ago, I want to say it was like five years ago when Angela Davis called out support for Palestine. And this wasn't not that long ago. There was such a big pushback. You know, she was called anti-Semitic. Um, at that time, she was up for this prestigious award that acknowledged the revolutionary work she has done for our communities as a Black woman, as a Black revo uh, revolutionary, you know, socialist woman for the past six, six decades. And because she actually pointed out how the U.S. has abided in, again, the destruction and the terror of Palestinians, in Israel, that award was stripped from her. She was called anti-Semitic. She was dragged through the mud. Same thing with our Congresswoman, Ilhan Omar, when she pointed out those similar things. And to see now in this moment, we literally have had in Minnesota several actions just this past week saying we want to be in solidarity with, um, you know, Palestinians. People are taking up 
you know, strikes um, saying we will not carry, you know, weaponry over to Israel. You know, people are protesting the, was it $735 million of aid that Biden just approved in weapon sales to Israel. We even have, you know, our Congressman Rashida Tlaib, she had to, you know, pull Joe Biden to the side on the t- uh, at, at the Detroit uh, airport being like, homie, what is you doing? The ties have shifted in, in the U.S., uh, where people are understanding just how much of a shared lot, <laughs> shared reality that we have with our neighbors in Palestine, because we experienced it even more, I think, presently over the past year, where we know what it's like to see military officers show up in our communities, literally driving down our residential blocks, being stationed near you know, our schools and in our nearby Chipotle and grocery stores, um, being given the orders to attack us because we are justifiably angry that the state has given police the powers to constantly kill us at will. We've been able to experience that and knowing that Palestinians, that have has been a daily reality of theirs for decades. And to now actually see that the state don't love us. The state doesn't love you if you're a black or brown person and they will villainize you um, and they will murder you when you are justifiably get upset and organized for your own liberation, they will literally send the military on you because you demand an end to police being able to take your life at their own discretion. This past year, especially this past month, when literally we saw Minnesota gearing up to go to war, and in many ways it did, especially in Brooklyn Center, they see our local officers, and you mentioned that too, police officers giving military-grade munitions, you know, tear gas, uh, other chemical weapons, um, flash grenades, the, the same tools that's being used on Palestinians and also in other areas that we've launched wars against, you know, other brown, largely we're in the Middle East, you know, areas where we've launched wars against other brown uh, people across this world. Those same tools of war is being used on our own neighbors next door. And I think for so many people, especially in liberal Minnesota, they would never think that could be something that could happen. You know, Ferguson, that's that's an anomaly. You know, the state going to war against black and brown people. And we forget this history when it comes to black and brown people that the state constantly is at war with us on a day-to-day basis. Wasn't it Philadelphia? You know, we just commemorated the anniversary of when their local city leaders authorized the dropping of a bomb on, um, I forgot the name of that. Uh, uh, the move bombing. Yeah. Thank you. The move yeah. bombing literally for black people organizing in their communities against, you know, state forces that again, kept their communities deprived of the basic needs, uh, basic supports and resources that you need to have a quality of life. There's been this reckoning. And again, this acknowledging that the state don't love us. And the only way that it will be able to ever love us is if we rise up like our folks in Palestine, like all across the world to take control, take control from the powers that be that has no problem deploying, you know, military grade weapons near our schools, near on, on families for us literally rising up and saying, don't kill us. Give us the things that helps us thrive you know, fully fund our schools, make sure races, uh, white Joe Blow don't get near a badge, but because he's killed five people on, you know, while he's been employed and me 
an educator, I could never kill someone and come back to work, you know, the next day. Never, never. I, I see Palestine and the solidarity that we're seeing, especially here in the U.S., all across the world. It shows, again, the opportunity for this mass working class uh, movement to really become manifested uh, against the state powers that aims to hold all of us back, you know, all across the world. And I, I just like to bring up, uh, you know, the move bombing, you know, in, in in Philadelphia, that was orchestrated by that city's first black mayor. That in 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 of itself should should tell you that you know representation by itself, you know, it doesn't always mean it progress. Thank you on that. It makes me think Operation Safety Now, which again that that is what our state forces, um, the 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 plan that put more than 3,000 National Guard soldiers on our streets um, during the trial of Derek Chauvin. That was approved by John Harrington, the um, commissioner of the Department of Public Safety for the state, another Black man, essentially, who ran on the platform around, I'm going to tackle inequities and, and injustices in our public safety system. He was actively part of literally sending, you know, more soldiers than than ever took place in Afghanistan into the streets of Brooklyn Center in Minneapolis, again, next to our Cubs, next to our schools, ready to give the orders to attack ordinary citizens for peacefully protesting. So you're right. Representation only goes so far. And I think as a Black socialist, what we try to be clear about is like representation matters, but more so what are you running or what is your principles? What is your political analysis? Because if you are running or aim to be in any position of power, just to be in the position of power. Again, we're going to have a repeat as we've seen in Israel. You know, the marginalized becomes the powers that be. You know, the oppressed becomes the oppressors. I I can tell you as someone who comes from Chicago that has tons of representation across, you know, our, our leadership structures, especially even within public safety, I'm pretty sure getting shot by a black police officer doesn't make it feel better about getting shot. You being harassed and pulled over for no reason, you're the officer who did it, who's Latinx, don't make your heart, you know, warm a little bit. Or was the the recent wasn't the, the CIA? No, no, no. There was a Latinx. The video, yeah, I, yes. I know, yeah. <laughs> I feel like yes, yeah. you a Latinx person engaging in surveillance over my crib. Uh, that could be used to like unjustly incarcerate me. That shit don't make me feel good. Same with the there wasn't there a Latinx person who oversees ICE. I think for the director of ICE at some point was also Latinx. That was a uh, that was Vietnamese, or, or rather, it might have been a Latinx. So in Viet- the Vietnamese community was really up in arms about that. He stepped down, but yes, yes, but that feels good though. I mean, but that's progress. You are getting. Your your deportation orders is also being supported by a person of color. That is change. Like, <laughs> and I think there there's a, a awakening towards like you know the failures of representational politics. And I know we're going on a tangent, but I mean, if there was any clear failures of that, like the Obama administration definitely embodied that. <laughs> And if we're talking about representation, especially since you mentioned Chicago, you know, shout out to Lori Lightfoot. (laughs) 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 
the memes that folks have created i mean somebody should really do i'm i'm taking a break from my phd program but somebody really should do a dissertation on like the political resistance that lies in memes because the memes that have come out about Miss Laurie. <laughs> I learned more about the political landscape from memes on, on Miss Laurie than all the articles I've been reading about the shit that's taking place in Chicago. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, Black Mayor, same situation. You know, Black Lives Matter organized heavily with the teachers union, you know, CTU to get Emmanuel um, up out of there after, you know, he covered the massacre of McDonald. That was the scandal that really gave rise to the, their BLM movement and really, you know, gave space for them to shake up the political establishment and get establishment leader Rahm Emanuel up out of there. And then to literally have first queer Black woman step into that position and see her do the same kind of dance to, to provide cover um, for Adam Toledo's murder by, you know, Chicago Police Department. Like, again, it shows, you know, representation that has never been the tool towards progress and liberation for black and brown folks. And I know it's, it's rooted in a particular history where, yes, we've been denied entrance from most sectors, industries in our communities, in our country. You know, it's largely been white, heterosexual, you know, cis white men. Um, who have had held not only positions of power, but just positions in our everyday, you know, workforce, you know, as managers, as our supervisors in working class settings. So I get the need for us to have our cultural, our physical representation. I understand the importance of that. But politically, knowing that if we are not up here um, using our platforms, these positions of leadership to really dismantle the grabs of, of capitalist forces over our communities. We're going to constantly be in this violent cycle of, again, you know, becoming the very oppressors that we fought against. Definitely. Yeah. Um, Tree, you also wanted to talk about uh, Colombia, right? Yeah, with Colombia and Myanmar. So the thing I talked about this earlier with if we're going to do like a quick 90 degree shift here with Adnan about how um, the idea of U.S. left literacy or leftist literacy with, with when it comes to Palestine and the Israeli state, the kind of commentary and analysis of, of that in relationship to the U.S. has is a, is a long, decades long. However, with Colombia and Myanmar, even though there are conflicts happening there in, and talking about Ethiopia, the Tigray region, which I don't know too much about except um if anyone would like to, to shed light on that. But with Colombia and Myanmar, those are two conflicts that, that have been arising in the past few months that don't get as much coverage or when they do, it feels like, I don't know, it doesn't feel like it gets the same scale as it does with um, the conflict in, in Palestine. If you both have any commentary on that, if not, we can just move on. I would just like to say real quick, um, you know, Hugo Chavez, he has a quote where, just to tie it back to Israel, he says, Colombia is the Israel of South America. In the essence that it is a far-right government that is heavily funded by the United States. And we saw some of that funding when there were videos on social media where you have helicopters, like attack helicopters, you know, with, with turrets and all that stuff, attacking protesters 
regular unarmed protesters. You know, they brought in attack helicopters like like it's a war zone. You know, I just thought that was crazy. But yeah, overall, uh, to be honest, I haven't been paying too much attention to what's been happening in, in Colombia and Myanmar and Ethiopia. Uh, so my knowledge, I guess, might be a bit limited on that. But if Robin, yeah, if you have anything you'd like to say about that, go ahead. Yeah. One of my, my mentors, you know, as, as we think of and talk about, you know, how do we advance a socialist revolution? Like, what does it mean to advance working class struggles so that working class people can then become a class of itself um, that fights for itself, fights for its interests, but also organizes for its interests and then take, you know, democratic control over society. Um, we we debate a lot about that, especially in our campaign, again, as, as we're running um, as socialists. And one of the things I think these conflicts or uprisings um, globally has, has really pointed to is the role of the military again. You know, the coups that's happening in Colombia, that's largely been uh, initiated by military forces, rebel forces, again, many of which we have a history you know, same way in the Middle East, you know, ISIS came about through our own support. We approved sales of arms to, you know, Saddam Hussein, the same forces that we said were, you know, leading the destruction of democracy in those commu- communities. We then gave them the very guns um, to turn on themselves. And then when they actually turned against us, then it was like, oh, no, 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 no. We ain't going to have that. Again, this repeated cycle under imperialism and capitalism more specifically for, you know, the consolidation of power, but through the use of the gun, you know, in Colombia um, or Myanmar, you know, in 2011, I mean, 2011, there was hopes, you know, of civilian control, this democratic, uh, democratic takeover of society there that was immediately repressed by military forces. And I think that's a trend that we've seen in many of our, you know, countries that experienced uprising. I'm thinking of Egypt, like with the Arab Spring, for instance, you know, we see these uprisings and then literally see the military occupation of power, essentially, and all of its repressive, you know, manifestations, again, ruling society by the gun. And in many ways, U.S., it's so representative of how we live in the U.S. as well. Again, the fact that walking down the street or driving in my car, I can be pulled over, not be granted any types of due process to a a trial, to meet before, you know, a jury of my peers. We've literally consolidated that role um, to a white dude named Bob. Ain't never taken, live with Black people, know about struggles of like working class issues, but we've given this person obscene amounts of power over our lives. And essentially, again, when we saw the uprising here in Minneapolis, you know, instead of the state saying, oh, shit, this uprising is rooted in a history of divestments in largely black and brown and working class communities, you know, maybe we should take the surplus of of money that we're getting from the federal, you know, care, uh, care acts or the stimulus money, couple that with Finally, you know, taxing some of these affluent households that extract more from our communities than they give, 
so that we can start to, you know, fully fund the, the socioeconomic structures um, and provide the resources needed to, you know, start rooting out racism in our institutions. No, instead of, <laughs> oh, and let's add the the the, the police accountability uh, legislation that has still been on the table since last May. And it's such a basic package. It's literally saying one of the main, main uh, mandates of it is ending qualified immunity for police officers. Again, to, you know, strip away this power for them to kill people at will um, and then be able to go and return to work uh, or make target runs the next day. We could, couldn't even get that. But what they decided <laughs> as an appropriate response now is we're just going to gear up a militarized presence. We're going to make sure we bring in, you know, tons of uh, military soldiers into our communities to institute and maintain control. And we're going to bring in neighboring law enforcers in case those 3,000 soldiers aren't enough. And we're going to make sure we get, um, you know, those local police departments that's supposed to be responding you know, to basic level crimes that don't require escalation. Let's give them budgets and access to uh, weaponry that we, you know, sell overseas or sell to Israel to, you know, uh, in acts in, in terrors, uh, war terrors. Let's give them, you know, these military grade ammunitions as well um, to use on 16 year old Jason, who is literally just standing outside of a third precinct or standing outside the Brooklyn Center pro, uh, precinct with an umbrella. Um, and saying, you know, I can't breathe. Uh, <laughs> like that is that is the the lessons that we've learned. I I mean, I don't, of course, have any answers, but I do know working class, the liberation of working class will require an internationalist movement, which is why I think it's so important that we examine what's happening in Colombia. How are working class people rising up there? How are working class people, you know? in Israel and Palestine with the strikes that's taking place? How are they organizing for their liberation? How are we connecting the threads? How we're exchanging lessons, especially living in the U.S., which is the crux of imperialist capitalism. If we were able to have a revolution here that stripped power from, you know, capitalist forces, imperialist forces, the weakening that they that will have of all those same forces across the world, like you talked about, Anand, you know, the military bases that are literally stationed all across the world so that when uprisings happen, when working class people, you know, organize in their interests, and this has been a long time, you know, discussion of do we need to be armed? Do we need to have an armed uh, faction of, you know, our working class, you know, uprisings and organizing structures, you know? And I think that is something that we definitely will have to have ongoing conversations. We have peaceful uprisings and then the state responds with bullets time and time again. That is what history has shown. They respond with seizing power from the very forces that we just toppled because we want to have a democratic future. We want to have a just future. And we're constantly met with tanks. We're met with tear gas. Yeah, there are <laughs> there are some lessons there of like that we need to wrestle with. I definitely yeah, I definitely agree. I do think we do need like an armed, at least an armed faction, you know, am among us, you know, to protect us, you know, from like white supremacist violence. When it comes to building like a working class movement, building um, 
you know, even like a like an armed protective body. The sad thing is, for the most part, our white brothers and sisters are not going to be happy with that. They're not going to be part of that, either through their silence or, you know, through their active disapproval or even active violence against us, you know. A true working class movement, you know, here, even an international one, will be among, you know, black, brown, you know, Asian people for the most part, you know. And that's, I think that's something we also have to acknowledge at the same time. Absolutely. With the five minutes left, I'd like to ask you, Robin, since we're, we're here, we, we all kind of share the same vernacular um, of, of, of leftist global south or you know, black and brown working class power, which is a destination that not every black and brown melanated person reaches, right? Some because we've been assimilated into liberalism of the U.S. And I wonder for you yourself, unless and feel free to answer this or or say something else with the time we have left with you. What was your journey like being exposed to or or becoming literate in racial capitalism, or what you're speaking to in terms of race and empire and capitalist political economies being all intertwined in the exploitation and dispossession of black and brown peoples. I developed this interest, not interest, but this passion for interrogating and organizing to dismantle racial capitalism out of force. And let me not say force, but out of necessity. Growing up in Chicago, specifically the South side of Chicago, a historically working class and poor black community. And that's been, that was intentional that again, Chicago is a apartheid city. All black people displaced to certain regions of the city, um, and then the good land, the good resources then be reallocated, you know, up north to serve uh, the white folks up there. Um, but growing up in that space, seeing my schools just be shitty, you know, why are textbooks hella outdated? It's 2005, you know, the date, the, the, the year that uh, is under like the copyright um uh, descriptor like on the first page of a book that says 1995 like what why like why is this uh, the case you know why we got so many slumlords in my community like just growing up and just seeing just subpar living conditions and I think immediately for me I I internalized that as like a fault uh, a a deficit of like just being black, of blackness. Like, you know, inherently being black means being deserving or warranted of subpar, you know, conditions, especially material conditions. Um, and seeing my mom work, you know, 80 hours, weeks to pay rent. Like just seeing my family struggle, seeing my cousins, you know, constantly cycle in and out of prisons. You know, I spent Many of my weekends since the age of one going to visit loved ones in prisons, like thinking that that's normal. And then it took me going to college, primarily a very liberal, wealthy college, Carleton College, to learn that that wasn't the reality for everybody. I mean, I knew the case in, in Chicago, but again, I was like, oh, that's because something wrong with us. But then going to, you know, college and literally my peers are saying spring break, I'm about to go to, you know, my private island on my private boat with my family. And I'm like, what the fuck? Um, I'm gonna go back home and try not to get shot. Like, what is you? What is it? How? How do you have this reality? And I think for me, that really created this interest 
Um, and fortunately, I had the courses, you know, access to political scholarship and interrogation from my own, you know, faculty, especially those who were in the humanities and social sciences that really helped to develop my consciousness of these things, of how, you know, one of my first courses, women and gender studies courses was on uh, militarization um, and how that's linked to, you know, capitalism in itself, the preservation of capitalism. And we looked at what ha had taken place in the Middle East, being like, wait, so you tell me like <laughs> brown people over there also have to deal with the state coming in, screwing up shit there. My schools got shut down because they were deprived of funds over there. You call it state forces collide with the U.S. and just bomb the shit out of people's communities um, in their schools. And it's just like, wait, what? <laughs> Part of that, too, was like escapism for me of like, OK, if racial if this is the norm here, like racial capitalism, apartheid living for black and brown people and all white folks. Somebody else got to be doing this better than like I, I I should be able to, you know, find a place in this big ass world that's not about this life. And that led me to do a international research where I looked at like criminal justice reforms in hopes that I will find a place that treated black people better. Um, that didn't constantly launch, you know, daily attacks on their lives. And then I traveled around the world and literally saw it happens to everyone. And it's largely because, again, like capitalism, you know, even in these quote unquote social democracy or democratic, you know, nations, like I went to Australia, which is supposed to be this like liberal bis, at least that's what's constantly reported in, in articles and literature. And you get there. And you also learn, oh, okay, Black people not, might not be getting, you know, locked up in disproportionate and just ever-expanding rates, but they show doing a hell of a job with, like, Indigenous people. Like, they're keeping those folks <laughs> removed from their lands, especially um, the Maori folks in, in uh, New Zealand. There's a Negro, I've learned, in every part of the world, in the state, because this is what capitalism requires. Capitalism especially racial capital, capitalism, requires that you have an underclass. And racism is one of the easiest ways in which you create that underclass for you to exploit, largely to exploit for labor, for resources, so that your those state powers can thrive. So in largely state powers means the market in many ways. You can't give everybody under capitalism it has no desire to see everyone have housing, have, you know, fully funded schools. And it wants people to think, you know, working class people to think that everybody don't deserve that. And the only way that you deserve it is if you're white or if you've been able to accumulate enough money through your labor to pay for, you know, quality services and to prop up those people to think that you're better because you got a little extra coins because you're white. When in actuality, you're one paycheck away from being homeless like most of these people. You're one, like literally, you're one recession away. And I think we've seen that in the US under the pandemic. You know, white folks lost a lot of their shit under COVID. And I think many of them started to experience what it feels like to live as a Negro in this country and was like, what? Um, so honestly, it was through those experiences, like going to other places and seeing that there is literally no safe haven 
for you as a black or brown person because state powers at the end of the day requires this exploitative, this violent relationship between, you know, the haves and the have nots. And until that's dismantled, like no black or brown or indigenous person will ever be free in this world. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the U.S. is plays a huge role in upholding this global empire. And there's such a significance, you know, for working class people here in advancing the liberation of our neighbors in Palestine and Egypt all across this world. There's such a significance in us being able to lead the revolution here, or uprising here to advance the liberation of working class people all across the world. And I want to be a part of that. I mean, Minnesota is one place. Minneapolis is one of those uh, places that I see. There's, there's tons of opportunities for us to support or create a new mandate of everyone deserves to be treated like human beings. Everyone deserves to have their basic needs met. And we're going to make that happen through working class organizing and making sure the rich pays for it. And we're going to take power because we saw we could do it in light of, of, you know, George Floyd, when the state fled, when it was completely absent, we organized, we figured out how to take care of our neighbors. We figured out how to find housing for our neighbors. We organized and created shelters for our neighbors, made sure our neighbors were fed. We have that capability. We saw it. And we need to keep nurturing that all the way through. And and that's our task, you know, and that's the that's the baton we passed on to hopefully, you know, future generations all across this world won't have to keep do, dealing with this shit, you know, having to deal with police violence here and then bombs in, in Palestine. We should definitely we should all be striving to make sure that that is no longer a reality. And we can I definitely, yeah, I definitely feel what you're saying. There's this quote I think can be attributed to Lenin where he says, there are decades where nothing happened, you know, and there are weeks where decades happen. You know, we're seeing that with Palestine, you know, before Zionism had such a strong hold on our culture where anyone who would dare, you know, speak out against Israel or or whatever would have, you know, they lose their livelihood, their credibility, what have you. You guys are familiar with uh, Mark Lamont Hill, right? Yeah, he's basically one of the biggest advocates, yeah, of uh, of of Palestinians in America. And he was, you know, f- as, as we know, he was fired from CNN for that. We're seeing a pushback against that silencing that I haven't seen, you know, my whole entire life. I remember being even a little kid and, and seeing, uh, I think, the war that Israel was fighting against uh, in Lebanon, the war in, in back in like 2006, you know, I said, I saw it on TV and I said, oh, that that's wrong, you know, and my parents were even telling me, hey, don't talk about this, you know, because you could get in trouble, you know, and I was like 11 years old at that time, you know, at the privacy, I couldn't even say in the privacy of my own home. I don't want to hold you up too much, Robin. I know you got a lot of work you got to do. Yeah, but again, I... You know, this is not the first or last. I hope to definitely join you all again. It's so few. And I mean, I think that's a testament to like what my campaign should be doing better. But like making these internationalists 
you know, connections. Um, and it's very rare that we have spaces to, again, to exchange the lessons. Like, I'm, I think that's why the most important piece of like socialism is learning that for decades, you know, we've had uprisings all around the world. We've had working class people rise up against, you know, imperialist forces um, and learning, you know, what, what were the lessons from that? How can we navigate, you know, our current political landscape that while it's changed, like I definitely love that quote from Lenin, it's changing rapidly, but many of the tactics that we use often feel the same. Again, you know, let's just elect more black people into, you know, positions of power. Like literally now the the sad part <laughs> that our elected leaders are advocating for a year later after George Floyd, you know, murder and the uprising that literally set a mandate that we completely need to transform public safety as it stands and policing has to be removed from it. The fact that literally this past week we had our, the Democratic establishment leader, Jega Fry, Chief Arredondo, Black police chief, you know, literally say, well, we just need to put more cops on the streets, but we need to make sure they come from the communities that they are policing and terrorizing <laughs> Like that is that is literally the solutions that are coming out a year later. And as I mentioned, growing I even know in my generation, again, like growing up in Chicago, there's tons of black police officers. And that shit don't feel good when my rights are being violated, when my life is under you know a, a threat. It doesn't feel good that it's coming from another black person. Like it doesn't. So I think it's so important that we take up these lessons and see how working class people are tackling the same forces that we are all around this world and how to start making those connections. Cause it, I think it helps with hope to see that we're not alone in this struggle. Um, and again, there's so many more of us and it is, there's literally more numbers of working class people who are screwed over under these exploitive systems than there are those who benefit. Holding on to that and knowing that revolution, liberation is all within our possibilities, all within our grasp, because we have the numbers, we have the shared realities. And that gets me excited about making, you know, Minneapolis be part of that struggle, a successful struggle um, that abides in that collective liberation of all of us. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's just uh, all of us, we're links in a chain, you know, and hopefully... We can create progress little by little, you know, whether whether we see the fruits of our labor in our lifetimes or grandkids or what have you, you know, it's all we can do is just push it a little bit forward, you know, and have that hope. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Robin, uh, do you just want to tell the people like where they can find you, where they can reach you? Absolutely. Yeah. Again, for our website, you can check us out at Robin, F-O-R-M-P-L-S. Dot com and then on all social media uh we have a facebook robin for minneapolis um you know spelled out um you can also find us on twitter and instagram at robin number four mpls um and definitely again check out ways um you can support we need tons of you know support in the the form of volunteers donating their time but also their money um and 
their expertise on some of these issues that we're going up against. Like we want to tax the rich and we want working class, you know, expertise and brainstorm on how we're going to do that in Minneapolis. So all of our collective needs can be fulfilled. Um, so, you know, definitely come check us out, show up uh, to one of our meetings. I think, you know, we do a really good job at making it a democratic space and, you know, acknowledging that change doesn't come from the elite. It doesn't come from, you know, political insiders. We literally have school bus drivers, waitresses, laid off workers, who's part of our team, you know, nurses and teachers. Um, and knowing that 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 is where expertise, that is where the basis of change comes from through ordinary people. Um, so yeah, hit us up. We'll respond um, and check out our podcast. Um, again, we have the opportunity here in Minneapolis to make some historic change with this election and beyond it. Um, but we need people power to make sure that we get that victory in November and, and to secure and bag more victories for our people because they need it and they deserve it. Hell yeah. Thank you so much, Robin. Absolutely. Um, all power to all that. Let's have you on again soon. Absolutely. One goal I'm speaking to the world is I want you and Dr. Sharice Burns-Stelly to talk um, since you um, since she's a professor at Carleton or do you know Dr. CBS? She's from Chicago, right? Yeah. Is she the new dope professor who's apparently like social justice warrior? I keep hearing of it. Is she also black? black yeah, she's I black. I keep yeah. hearing about yeah. this sister. I think Greg or someone told me because we have a couple of Carlton alum about her. Yes, I would love to be in conversations. I clearly have very limited contact with folks at Carlton. Um, so <laughs> I'm so excited to hear that they got some 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 hitters there, especially on the faculty side. Yeah, I, I don't know her personally, but hopefully I'm just speaking into the world, um, especially yeah, since y'all call Carlton folks. I would definitely that remind. I think the last conversation I had about her. I was supposed to follow up. Like I still have connections with some faculty who live in the cities and who are still dope and they're there. Um, so I'm pretty sure they work with her and can do like a, a, a introduction. So another podcast idea for the curls here. <laughs> Hell yeah. Mm. Hell yeah. I can't wait for that. Okay, Ron, we got to let you go. We're, we're really over time. All right, y'all. Thank, thank you so, so much. Anon and Tree. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Absolutely. Hopefully we'll see each other again. Yes. I felt that was good. That was really good. Yeah. And we could have gone much longer. I really hope we can book another yeah. time with Robin. Yeah. Where, where to start? I think one thing, speaking to international um, kind of working class solidarity of like, since we're here in, you know, the liberal core of the USA where people think, oh yeah, all our material needs are met or like, there, there's something interesting about the, the phrase like a, a working class maybe of itself, but not for itself. And then the liberal kind um, hegemony of the u.s where it's like once you're out of the working class then you're okay you don't have to fight for quality of life or good material working material conditions for the working class right yeah and and there's something interesting about that with the u.s because like around in colombia in palestine in myanmar they are the working class don't have that ability to ascend out of their um their sort their economic station whereas we do kind of have that here if you go to the right school like marginally yeah, yeah. Mm. exactly yeah i'm just thinking about that uh, about how do we rally and raise a flag for that kind of internationalism here in the u.s without it becoming kind of um how, how do you say it bromides like uh just a bunch of platitudes where we're, we can say it in the comfort of our uh relative material abundance 
Yeah. I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, pressuring our politicians, you know, pressuring our politicians to restrict aid to, you know, to, to make it seem like that supporting whatever various right wing, you know, dictator, how do you, how would you say it? Like basically dictators, you know, does not come it, it basically making it so that it comes at a political cost, you know, at that a very strong political cost. And the biggest thing, you know, since we are in the imperial core, biggest thing we I, I feel like we can do is, you know, listen to revolutionaries there, listen to freedom fighters, protesters. What do they want from us? And also one of the biggest things we can do is fight our own government for the sake of uh i guess <laughs> for the sake of uh you know the feds or whatever i don't necessarily mean you know violence but to hold the people and, and create pressure you know that's for instance you know the we were talking about george floyd you know the Derek chauvin case the only reason why he was convicted was because of the pressure that the people put on the city you know what would you think? What would you think would have happened if that man was not convicted? You know, the whole city would be on fire right now, and we need to realize that every kind of concession, like you know how leftists in the U.S. sometimes they praise, you know, FDR. You know, sometimes you'll hear like, "Oh, Bernie Sanders is the most progressive." Uh, candidate since FDR, you know how FDR has sort of this myth, you know, within American leftism, American uh, progressivism, you know, with the New Deal and things of that nature, it actually came through very strong, you know, labor movements through very strong strikes. And, 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 you know, there were workers that were basically marching on Washington, you know, with loaded guns, you know, on, on strike, you know, ready to face the military, ready to shoot it out with the military, you know, creating that kind of pressure where in order to, you know, to maintain any kind of peace, you know, and not to have like a civil war, you basically have to have concessions. You know, the basic, the government basically has to make some sort of concession and basically pressuring and, 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 and hitting and basically, you know, pushing our government to meet our demands through pressure, through the, you know, the exertion of power, I think is really important. Right. And it feels, I guess the, the immediate question to that is what, what are these pressures? What are the concessions that we have? It seems like the, for the most part in our liberal democracy, the be, liberal democracy, the kind the only, the made the most major pressure that we can put on is like an appeal to morality or appeal to the constitution or whatever, like the documents that, that bind this country that say, Oh, like like holding people to abide by legal texts because we don't there there is this impression of like the absurdity of militarizing civilians in the U.S. since or or, or am I wrong because you think about Colombia, Palestine, and Myanmar where these are not definitely not like highly highly developed high GDP whatever the metric is nation states but in the U.S. like you have all your material conditions how how do you know like a lot a bunch of these people who become armed are actually like working class poor versus i don't know a bunch of larpers who are just trying to get their yeah. their, their rocks off um what what pressures do we have outside 
of of militarizing people or normalizing militant defense factions and binding our, our representatives to codes of law or, or how you say that, constitutional law. The fact that a lot of our material needs are, are met, you know, and a lot of the reason why is because of the heavy imperialism that's being conducted all over the world, our relative uh, safety and, and security, that comes from someone else's insecurity, someone else's pain, like the iPhone. A lot of the minerals are, are, are basically mined by literal slaves, you know, in the Congo. That's generally a good explanation why I guess the U.S. left is not as, as strong as it should be and as, as strong as it needs to be. So um, I'm sorry, the question was at the end, kind of got lost. No, no, no. Yeah, no problem. I, I know I have a tendency to, to pack a lot into my questions that maybe um, aren't serviceable. But there's a, so there's this anime called Full Metal Alchemist and the idea of the, the guiding principle yeah, of, it, it. of alchemy is that uh, equivalent exchange. You can't have something without exchanging it for the ex- expending something else. Um, and I think people really do think by whatever propaganda that they, they're, they've been fed, forced to swallow in the U.S. that um, the abundance here is was made out of just innovation or, or us having a liberal democracy mm-hmm. apart from, I don't know, other governing bodies or uh, oppressive governing forces. And they're like, oh, yeah, we all this shit just comes out of thin air because America is so fucking innovative at being right. magical in that way. And I don't know what it would take for us to like undo that or to um, deprogram people out of that. To, I mean, that does take an international lens, right? But all our, all the corporate media uh, giants and stuff, um, different academic channels aren't, aren't too keen on, on making that like a normalizing that sort of education because i don't know the state's watching the state's watching if, if, if people get yeah. too educated then <laughs> yeah yeah then they they can put pressure then the people become educated enough to put pressure know how to be strategic and tactful about how they apply pressure rather than that, like this yeah the liberal assimilated oh we're gonna fight for these concessions based on diversity in the workplace but i think uh damn it i keep losing my thoughts man i'm sorry it was like the midday I, hump, I guess. Uh, I feel and you and you talked um, you talked some good shit with uh, Robin, and so I, I I'm kind of like <laughs> pummeling you in after that fatigue. Um, right. No. Uh, so you were saying that um, how do we like exert pressure exactly? Right. Yeah. How do we get people to know what kinds of pressure to exert, and then what are those pressures out? Especially when we live in like a nominally liberal democracy. Where the working class aren't, isn't for itself, doesn't know how to be for itself. It's right. you can have a working class, right. but they are, are aspiring to be bourgeois, petite bourgeois, and that's what they're fed in terms of like how to have security. And 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 the image of that petite bourgeois wealth and affluence is just so it's so tempting and so how do you, how do you say it? What's the word? What, it's, it's so, so seductive. Yeah, seductive. That's the word. Thank you. Yeah. It's so seductive yeah. that they can't they don't know how to be of of a working class that fights for its own interests. A lot of our aims, and you know, maybe because this is the left in America, maybe maybe the vast majority, maybe you know, petite bourgeois in some way, or at least you know, ascribe to petite bourgeois, you know, ideas, and so they think, okay, so how do we convince those people as if those are the only type of people in the world when there are so many, you know, poor, struggling, you know. Robin was talking about this, how there are so many uh, recently incarcerated folks that have just that have just been released, you know, and they have nowhere to go and they have 
nothing to do. What is the U.S. left doing for people like that? You know, single mothers that are swamped to their necks with with problems, you know, about to be evicted, you know, poor people, you know, people, drug dealers, drug addicts. You know, I, I feel like ultimately, you know, revolutionary potential comes from those people more than it, it will from college educated petite bourgeois, you know, leftists as hard as, you know, they may push the goal, you know, even if or I may be, or somebody else may be, you know, petit bourgeois, is to ultimately, in a sense, become class traders and work closely with those people, you know, with, I guess you would say, the lumpen or the actual, you know, proletariat, which, you know, in America, for the most part, is black and brown people. You know what I'm saying? I do. I do know what you're saying. I mean, France Fanon talked yeah. about this pretty extensively in Wretched of the Earth, of, of the lumpen, that he exposed the contradiction of, yeah, the class ascendant national of like a peripheral nation who, who's being exploited by a metropole. That national goes to the metropole, goes to the, the colonizing center to be educated, and then comes back and is like, we need to, you think about Ho Chi Minh, you think about um, uh, Patrice Lumumba and a lot of different anti-colonial nationalist leaders who, who come back, but then like there's kind of the, the contradiction of like, they're leading because the working class are, are very dispossessed of time, ability, and resources to um, become organized, to mobilize. Like the bourgeois national or the bourgeois anti-colonial national, in effect, becomes the glue that binds that force together. But will they be an effective glue? Or are they? I, <clears throat> well, let me. I'm making this metaphor up on the spot. The glue, glue idea. Even the proletariat. Uh, Francis Nan talked about how, like, in the city, urban cent- centers, the proletariat were still like better paid or or well more material well off than the the lumpen in this and so they're still even if you're working class you could be labor aristocracy all that stuff and those gradients um, are really hard uh, contradictions to overturn and especially i think he was talking about you know the difference between like urban areas and like farmers at the same time people still within sort of like a semi-feudal type of situation right as far as i'm aware and now we're living in a in a whole new thing where farmers aren't really a as much of a thing it's it's as you said like the drug dealers the other kinds of merchants people who in a previous episode you talked about like they're just minding their own business or, or rather ung or on talked about how the only reason why the state cracks down on them is because they they're against the interests of the state but for the most part these people who are dealing drugs or doing um sex work or or any kind of like illicit yeah. uh underground trading of services and, and goods they're not doing anything harmful oh well that's that's a whole conversation but but for the most part it's just that the state doesn't want them to act like that. And it's an opportunity for the state to show like, oh, we're against crime. We're going to, sh- we're, we're, we're in the interest of the middle class who fund us. Um, mm-hmm. So there's just an, a lot of opportunities for the state in this post-colonial, highly neoliberalized world with its, um, where the free market concentrates all the wealth in like these specific nation states that yeah. the state has opportunities to say, hey, in our wealth, we are going to protect the people who benefit from this wealth, from these currents of wealth and affluence. By saying we're against the crime and against the uh, the lump and proles, the, the 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 illicit dealers of goods and services, and we'll protect our middle class and and then people are seduced by that and want to be like, okay, I'll become middle class, so I don't have to to be of of the vulnerable, unprotected class. But the working, the proletariat, and the lumpen aren't in aren't for itself. Didn't Lenin say uh, Marx and Engels? They were basically you know part of the petit bourgeois, like the intelligentsia, right? And that is what 
gave them the time and, and the ability to, you know, come up with these, you know, revolutionary texts, you know, and, and, and commit this revolutionary activity. And I think he said something along, correct me if, if I'm wrong, but I think he said somewhere along the lines that the working class by itself, the farthest they'll go is like maybe unionizing without the, I guess you would say revolutionary or, or class trader who is in a, maybe a better status, you know, but, you know, they don't subscribe to the individualism of that status. You know what I mean? And that class of people can be utilized in like a positive sense. Because we talked about this, I think, uh, in, in one of our podcasts, right, where, you know, to 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 even read and to even educate yourself on these things, you know, it takes time. You know, and a lot of working class people, they don't have that kind of time. You know, like we're talking about Palestine, we're talking about, you know, uh, Myanmar, we're talking about, you know, Colombia. And a lot of people don't have time to read up on that. So some people working two or three jobs, you know, they got kids at the same time, you know that class of people can be a positive can be a positive force you know if they let themselves be right right and then there's the question of to what extent are they a necessary force do we for for any kind of and then lenin gets into this with vanguardism of well i think he does um if i'm if i am understanding correctly of like you need a professional revolutionary class who are able to educate and become that kind of cohesive glue for like the masses to to be bonded together um, towards a mass line, towards like a specific goal so that they're not just like fighting just for unions or just for these kind of segmented uh, goals that don't yeah. have a, a, a capstone thing, right? To what extent is a vanguard, an intelligentsia vanguard, uh, uh, how are you described it earlier, necessary? Uh, people who are, cl- how, how necessary are class traders to the revolution? I think very necessary, probably. Yeah, me too. I agree. I mean... We're basically are those people, right? You and me, right? We're basically are those people. We're making a podcast right now. You know what I mean? During like Thursday at like twelve forty-five p.m. Right? You know exactly. I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. You know, making puppets. I'm here at a puppet yeah. place. I'm gonna <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Great. Basically, like artists, class, creatives. You know that type of thing. You know they are part of the petty bourgeois, and so you know. As long as, of course, they don't fall into that, you know, overwhelming and seductive, you know, individualist, you know, take what's mine, fuck you, you know, type of, you know, ideology, you know, that's that's part of that class. You know, I think in terms of educating, in terms of, you know, just dispelling rumors, you know, not dispelling rumors, but dispelling myths on how basically the sausage is made, you know, and in essence, in, in you know, in this capitalist society, I, I think, you know, they serve a, a great purpose, you know. I think Mao, he's, he, he said, he had like a similar quote, quote where he says, um, you know, when it comes to the revolution, there'll be two fronts, you know, the front, the front with the gun and the cultural front, you know. Well, primarily, the, prim- the important primary uh, front is the one with the gun, but also the cultural front is also very important, you know. And then Without our the cult- job base... Uh, go ahead. I was just, I was just going to say the cultural front is necessary for that gun to be pointed in the right ways and to be used correctly. Yes. Yeah. And not turn a, a turn on itself uh, if, if yes, like the other side course. has a more a better cultural force cultural front. You're saying or turn yeah, on each other. Yeah. Turn on e- turn on each other. You know. All right. Let's close out in a moment here. I do want to say one thing on Myanmar because it feels like as the locus of attention shifts. So this is the the complicated thing with talking about 
Palestine, even even if you're like you're firmly pro-Palestine, anti anti-state, anti-white supremacist Israeli state, mm-hmm. is that if I, I still like I talked to you earlier over text, even even when I mentioned Myanmar, it just feels like something that's outside of the vernacular of US leftists because like it's in Southeast Asia, no mm-hmm. one knows about it, what kind of even though like the civil disobedience movement, which is the major movement in Myanmar, is like mm-hmm. I said to you before, like a it, it was started because healthcare workers and educators walked out of their out of their jobs and still still are um, withholding that labor value in order to deprive the government of of the profits that come from 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 their labor. If we're talking about an internationalist movement, we have to be aware of conflicts outside of the Western sphere because Israel, Palestine, still in the Western sphere, um, Colombia in in the Americas. What do we think about what's happening in Asia outside of China? Are we able to have an analysis of, of any other geopolitical conflict or or Cold War type thing, however you want to talk about it, that isn't a ma- at mass scale in relation to the U.S.? It is probably very anti-internationalist if we don't keep our minds or find some way to keep places like Myanmar in mind, um, since they are outside of this, often more outside of the scope of U.S. geopolitics than, than not. And then that leaves right. them more vulnerable because we aren't paying attention to them. Right. right. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I wasn't necessarily uh, like against it because the right, thing yeah. was, uh, yeah, because I thought we would have like a, like a quick pre-call and then like er- and then Robin would come in. Right. Like my main thing I wanted to talk about was how Israel trains, you know, the police force. And, you know, since Robin's campaign is very like, you know, anti-police brutality and things of that nature, I kind of wanted to tie it into that. But yeah, definitely. Definitely. You're definitely right about that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wish we had better like tech stuff and, and you know, mm-hmm. um, just because we're petite bourgeois doesn't mean we ha- we have petite bourgeois problems like this. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. tech, tech shit. Um, <laughs> no, but I think uh, just to um, piggyback on what you were saying about how do we build like a, like an international coalition, we have amazing technology like right now. Like we could, if we wanted to talk to right now, like a Filipino communist on zoom or on uh what are we on zencaster and we can ask directly you know what do you need from us people that live in the imperial core at this point you know with the, with the amazing technology that we have you know it's like it becomes a matter of will than it does anything else agreed well will and principled thought because i'm gonna mm-hmm. bring up so with my work i'm gonna try and close on this um I work at the Seed Project, S-E-A-D, and we're releasing this series called Myanmar in Mind, which is covering different aspects of Myanmar, both at a historical level, but also soon enough at a geopolitical level. What you're talking about with the Philippine communists, we're talking, we had conversations with two um, uh, Myanmar activists about uh, what's happening and trying to have that anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist view, uh, framing of it. And one thing that uh, one of the activists who I'll leave on name because this is one of the things like in Myanmar, this, this is the us in our cushy, cushy activism in the, in the U S um, people, if people's names are revealed, uh, the, the government can go after them and yeah, yeah. kill them like straight up. Right, um, right. Yeah. And they can say like, it's in, it's in our own defense. We're doing it out of defense, right? That, that bullshit uh, is also yeah. happening in that, that rhetoric. So she talked about, um, Oh, what, what can we in the Imperial Corps do for them? Yeah, yeah. And she says yeah. that, Myanmar doesn't need the imperial corps to to help them in the sense of like being allyship with them. They just we, they will liberate themselves. What they need is there's resources. They just need um, 
us to deal with our own politicians so that, that they don't meddle and become more of a nuisance, more of, a, of a, an antagonistic force. If we can do that for them, then they will handle their own shit. That's what I was basically talking about in terms of pressuring our own you know, government. The working class there can handle, no one has any better knowledge of their own situation than the people in that situation. That's why I say, you know, because of this Cold War with China, you know, so many leftists have basically become cold warriors, you know, against China. And basically, it's a country of like, how much, like like 1.8 billion or something like that. Like they can handle, you know, they don't need your critique. I'm I'm pretty sure they're fine. I'm pretty sure at least, you know, 10 million other people have made that critique that that you you you've just made and they've done it better. They don't need our help in figuring out their country. You know, and so many leftists just sit online and you just talk shit about, you know, all oh, this government here, this government there. It's like, okay, what is what does that create for anybody? What does that do for anybody? Does it even do anything for, you know, the the working class in your own country, let alone a working class in another country? And that's, I guess you would say, the petite bourgeois elements of the left right there. Yeah, I agree. And I think the idea there is to try and build a cultural force, like trying to make sure like we fine tune it so that we don't get co-opted or we aren't deluding ourselves. Like that's what I guess the Twitterati, the Twitter universe is trying to butt heads like but overall yeah it it, right now it only lends to what you're speaking to in terms of consequence um like lack of consequence anyways any last words before we kind of close out here so you're you're training for like a puppet show right now right yeah yeah right yeah exactly so um if you're in the twin cities I'll, i'll plug this um we i'm with open eye theater we're doing this show called the amazing cowboat which is an adaptation of a show that they do yearly and it's based on this kid. The, the kid used to be named Char- regularly named Charlie. And this adaptation, his name is Ben because he's a Vietnamese boy. Um, mm-hmm. And it's directed by some folks. And one of the folks is Juan Vu. She's a Vietnamese puppeteer in the cities. And she was like, hey, Tree, will you do the thing? Because I did some puppeteer intensives. I'm like, okay, sure. Uh, doing it. So that's happening. Um, if, there aren't public events necessarily. If you're in the Twin Cities, you can go to Open Eye Theater, look up the driveway tour and book us for like a... Um, for an event and if you want to invite people and have an event and have people come then you can you can't uh you can't like come in there you can't come and like sit right like in the theater no no shows uh, in that way okay so yeah this is a the the summer driveway tour so people book us to come to them and we have like a mobile setup okay 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 so so, so the story is like a like a morality tale of some kind or something for like kids, oh yeah you right? did yeah you you did ask that in the front. There's no yeah. morality. It's just like this kid is in the bathtub, uh, Ben's in the bathtub, and then they have an imagination about like going to um, having this their cow toy turns into a boat, and they they sail the seas, and they like trying to they get lost, and then they find each other. Um, it's really just a lot of silliness. Uh, just a lot of like, just a lot of silliness. Uh, that's great. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> is there any morality in this play in the show? I don't think so. Like no. Okay. Okay. That's cool. Um, just trying to keep things light in this heavy, heavy time we live in. Um, how about you? Are you doing anything relaxing, somewhat restful? I just saw, uh, I just watched, I just binged through, uh, you know, Invincible. Have you seen it? Like that show? I have not. It's like a, it's like a superhero cartoon. You haven't seen anyone talk about it online? I, ha- I don't think I've been online in that space. Let me see. Yeah, go ahead and describe it. It's like a, yeah, it's like a superhero cartoon, basically. I think, uh... Amazon released it like on, on uh, whatever their their streaming uh, thing is called, 
like season one is like an eight episode show and you know it starts out like very very like light like it starts out basically like a ripoff of spider-man basically on you know, peter parker's story and, and things of that nature right at the end of the first episode it just takes like a very weird like super violent turn you know it's like i don't want to ruin it too much for people but it's like ultra like gory and it's like when i was growing up like a lot of my friends were into dragon ball z you know and i just for some reason never got into it and then it i, I started to realize the appeal of it you know it's like oh okay this is because it kind of did remind me of like in terms of like the fights and you know the how devastating those fights can be it's like oh okay this is why people like this you know what i mean you see it yeah, I do see it. And thank you yeah. for yeah talking about the Dragon Ball or connections of like, yeah, you look at the thing and it's like, what what the what the hell is this hype about? And yeah. and really thumbnails and, and descriptions just don't do it, don't really tell you shit. Um okay. you have to really watch the thing sometimes. And and yeah. so I'm curious about this invincible thing from the yeah. way you're describing. It's basically like um it starts off like, you know, you know how Spider Man, you know, like teenage kid gets superpowers, you know blah 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 he he figures it out along the way and then his father is basically like superman you know because he inherits his powers from his father and his father is basically superman he comes from you know another planet and you know he comes to earth to protect earth and ultimately he becomes not to ruin it too much but ultimately he becomes the villain of the story this guy is basically it's it's basically like a r-rated what if superman went bad you know and it's like like you get to see like oh okay this is what like superman's powers can do you know if if he wasn't like if he wasn't stuck in like a like a PG13 type of you know environment cuz it's based off like a, a very popular like comic book and it was written by the same guy who uh created the walking dead you know robert kirkman oh yeah 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 it's it, it's a, it's actually a comic book that was created by him damn all right cool um yeah it's so fun yeah okay i'll have to check it out with it's you. also funny too it's also just a funny show it's also it's like it's it's not like super like it's super gory and gross but it's also like kind of funny you know yeah not total edge lord stuff it's also got a like humor i was just gonna say it's like super heartbreaking at the end too it's like i mean it's interesting that amazon's pulling out all these like anti-superhero shows right yeah. um like with uh what the boys have you seen it i've seen a little bit i haven't seen too much of it just like hyper gory um villainization of the of the superheroes all right. I think we should end it here. I do have to get going. Um, it's sure. been great talking to you and having yeah, you, you on too, for, you for Robin. Hope you have a good rest of your week. You Bye, Adnan. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah.